0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
1: AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, back here in the New York office and in studio with our film critic, Richard Lawson.
3: Hello, we're not letting you leave.
2: Uh, (laughs) Our digital director, Mike Hogan. (laughs) Please stay. (laughs) And on the line is our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. And we're joined right now by a special guest, Johanna Desta, our staff writer. Uh, hi. You can say hi. Hello.
4: Yeah, I was like, ah, ah, I yeah. Uh
2: So as we talked about last week, uh, Emmy's season is in full swing. And on VF.com, we're running a series of conversations with people who made some of the most interesting television of the last year. And Johanna, we brought you in to kind of kick off today's or this week's version of that. Because you talked to Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is the uh, showrunner and star and writer
4: and director of... <laughs> Every hat possible that you could wear on Fleabag. She wears yeah. them
2: all. Um, so uh, tell us about what uh, fascinated you about this character who is just called fleabag and uh, why she felt like a character you wanted to bring back up in this uh, Mm -hmm. for your consideration period Mm -hmm.
4: i was one of those people who heard about the show super super late in the game like everyone had already seen it and said it was the best thing ever and then i watched it and it was like uh, getting punched in the gut it's so good it's like this perfect mix between like a comedy and a drama and phoebe waller bridge is like the mastermind of the whole thing she's such a great performer when when i found out she's like the writer and the creator and the showrunner. I was like, you are an incredible tour de force and I need to talk to you and know everything about this show. So
2: where did she come from? I feel like we always hear about these British talents who like become famous here and they've been famous for a decade, like James Corden. Uh, but is she like one of those or does she kind of an out of nowhere success?
4: I, I don't know too much about like her entire like theatrical background, but she started in theater. I'm pretty sure. She also had like another show. I think it was called crashing. And then Fleabag was born of, uh, like a monologue that she wrote and used to perform, I think in England. And, uh, yeah, then someone was like, this would be a great show. And she was like, yeah, I agree. I'm going to write a couple episodes.
0: Yeah, that's my British addiction. Um, she's, her, her show Crashing is on Netflix. So if you guys, if you watched Fleabag and you're like, ah, it's not enough anymore, <laughs> um, it's, it's really good. And it's, it's not as good as Fleabag, but you can see sort of the seeds of Fleabag there and her being sort of unapologetically, not the nicest person uh but still someone that you're rooting for and um yeah i I think she's she hasn't been like super she wasn't super famous it's not like a james corden who was famous in england for a long time before he came over here but yeah as johanna said i think she did like a lot of the edinburgh fringe festival and stuff like that before before hitting it big and now she's in star wars and doing a million other things so she's
3: she's kind of like um uh sharon or something you know who created Mm -hmm. um, yes catastrophe uh you know who had another show that was popular but this this second one that's also on amazon like fleabag is was the one that kind of got her more international notice um yeah and fleabag is on amazon so you can watch crashing on netflix and then go to the competition and you're having a full <laughs> streaming day yeah. That yeah
4: so what did you learn in uh, talking to phoebe ohana i learned a lot about like things that she cut like the things that were in the original play that she didn't want to include that went like way too dark oh god like it's so it's so like straight up like perverse stuff for people who haven't seen <laughs> the show can swear on this podcast yeah okay it's like it's a very dirty show it's very raunchy it's about sex and i guess in like a tasteful like way but it's still like pretty straight up so there were a lot of scenes that were cut that were just super super sexual where amazon was like you can do everything but hey maybe let's cut that thing out like this crazy imagination scene that she has about a doctor who's giving her a mammogram and it just goes a little bit further from there, and they're like even
2: streaming companies have a have a limit. You, you <laughs> yeah. can't do anything you want on Amazon. Yeah,
4: yeah. But she's she's such a delight. She's really funny. She like loves talking about the character, and I learned a lot too about like things that she included that she didn't even realize people would pick up on, like like the fact that the character doesn't have a name. She didn't really think very deeply about that. The character is just Fleabag, and then after the show came out, she was like, "Oh yeah, it's like this kind of cool." way to to make her even messier to make her more mysterious to the viewer because like even though you're privy to like her breaking the fourth wall and talking to you she still has this bit of mystery in this way so the the whole idea of us writing these uh, emmy season articles is to kind of make the case for these people to get emmy nominations do we feel like she has a chance in this very crowded emmy field oh man i well i feel like most of the competition is over in like limited series and stuff is fleabag going to be considered that or
3: is she i, I think she it's a, a regular series yeah and it's a
4: comedy
0: yeah. even though it's very dark right yeah. Oh,
3: yeah oh yeah it's a comedy it's half hour you know yeah i mean
4: all, you, all the comedies are dark these days yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. What do, so what do you it think about
0: right I feel like she has a shot again where exactly what Richard said where Sharon Horgan got in last year which was in the writing category. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That I believe catastrophe got a writing nomination. So I could definitely see her getting like you know I I think that the awards uh, seasons are really tending towards rewarding these Renaissance men and women, right? So Aziz Ansari and Donald Glover, and so hopefully Phoebe Waller Bridge and Issa Rae and like these other people who are wearing all the hats, mm-hmm. and the various academies are like, we see you wearing all those hats here. Have have a trophy to hang your hat on. now. But it
1: also so, seems uh, like that's kind of unfair advantage in a writing category if you're also the star and on screen, like it just you're just more famous than all the other true. writers that no one's ever
3: heard of. Yeah, you're, you're a little more high profile, and people are like, yeah. oh yeah, that one. Yeah, right. Yeah. I recognize yeah. that face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: it reminds me of like the year. I don't know. There was some year that mad men was nominated i think in like four of the five categories and it was like it was it was only it was the staff but every single category was like matthew wiener matthew wiener matthew right like, who's yeah. gonna win if they're nominated in four out of the five categories but you're right mike if they're like uh you know celebrity writers
1: it's uh, a way like to I'm stand out Irish. in a list of yeah. names sure. that might be not that
3: familiar yeah most of them
2: yeah, and it's nice to see a woman take the stage for mm-hmm. one of those writing categories and not just the acting category. So that's an advantage yeah. there, too. Mm-hmm.
3: Now, so uh, the show, like you mentioned, Johanna, is pretty... It goes there, as, as <laughs> they used to say about Degrassi. Um, <laughs> um, so, and some of the... You know, the Emmys, the voters tend to be... They, you know, they, they, they nominate kind of out there stuff sometimes but you know as with anything any other voting body there's you know you kind of there's a reason fraser won like 18 years in a row and why monk won 18 years in a row you know how would you pitch fleabag to like someone older who was very resistant to the idea of the show like what what, how would how would you bring someone into it
4: I mean, I think, I think I would play up that it's, it feels very theatrical. Like it's very much like a, a character study in a way, even though it's about, you know, her really messed up relationship with sex. It's also about her relationship with her family. She has a really strange relationship with her dad and she has a really strange relationship with her sister. So they are, even though it can get very sexual at times, it really is this fascinating portrait of a woman who's kind of in shambles and how she uses sex to sort of grasp at things and yeah just to sort of like grasp at things and challenge herself and then it ends up ruining her life in a lot of different ways so it's interesting how she uses it as a
3: device rather than just like here's a sexy scene of me like doing stuff right it has a kind of psychological honesty to it because right. she's also grieving for a friend right mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah um, I, I think that's good I mean you know people like complicated comedy these days it feels like
4: well you know that was interesting that was one of the things she talked about too was like she didn't want sex to be like the thing that traumatized the character only which is why she had like personal loss being like the, the main thing that really messed up this character you know it's about her best friend dying and it's about her her mom dying a long time ago and how that impacts her life now so, so there are other elements to it as well
3: and it is funny.
5: Yeah.
4: <laughs> it doesn't sound funny, but it, it is. Oh, man, the modern comedy. It's just sad. <laughs>
2: So, Yohanna, your Phoebe Waller-Bridge interview is up on the site now. Are mm-hmm. you, I think you're doing some other uh, Emmy f- for your consideration interviews, right? So that we can see m- more where that came from.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, there there are some people I'm like brainstorming that I want to talk to, but <laughs> I haven't talked to them yet. And I talked to some other folks who I just find interesting, even though they're not really in the conversation. Like John Early, who's on Search Party and is so good. We can put him in the conversation. That's what yeah. this is all that's about. That's John that's Early, right. remember yeah. John Early? Yeah, he's he's so good. Um, uh, and yeah, there's some other people I'm hoping to talk to, but cool. not talked to. Well, uh, people should go read your
2: article. Up, uh, right now and, uh,
3: including uh, especially Emmy voters yeah yeah That's all right. of the Emmy yeah. voters That's right. yeah.
2: please go uh, vote for Phoebe Waller-Bridge Okay, so in our continuing uh, Emmys FYC season, we also have an article from Joanna that I think has gone up this week about Carrie Coon, who is not just amazing on The
0: Leftovers, but is amazing on a whole different series. She's just like everywhere. I talked to Damon Lindelof and Noah Hawley, who are two critically beloved showrunners who both chose Carrie Coon to be their leading ladies this season. The Leftovers for its third and final season and The Fargo for its sort of third installment. And uh, what's really uncanny, having watched all the way through both series, I watched to the end of Fargo, even though it still has a couple more episodes to air, is how both these men sort of independently of each other wrote very similar stories for Carrie Coon down to the fact that like her character technology doesn't work around her character, like all these weird specific things that they wrote independently and like... Damon got really mad because he asked he asked Carrie Coon, he's like, did you leak all of this to Noah? And she's like, no. And then Noah got really mad because Carrie didn't tell him that he was essentially writing, like, the same thing that The Leftovers had done. So, Damn, um, guys, work I, this out I, for yourselves. This isn't Carrie's fault. <laughs> I, I, well, she was like, she was so funny because I talked to her about it. She was like, I was just keeping quiet and of to see what was going to happen. Um, <laughs> but that's very her. She's very, like, she was raised in the Midwest. She's very, you know, Carrie Coon has a background in theater. She's married to a to prize winning playwright Tracy Letch. she's very intellectual. But, you know, I I sort of was curious what it was about Carrie as a person that had inspired these two, I consider television geniuses to write um, basically the same story for her. And I think it's just a brightness, you know, Mike and I disagreed about The Leftover Season 1, Mike was a huge champion of it, and I really didn't like it. And but what I could concede is that Carrie was a really Bright spot in a very dark and depressing first season. And Lindelof actually gives her credit for finding lightness and humor and basically changing the tone entirely of The Leftovers and making it into the critically beloved if criminally underwatched show that it became. So, yeah, so it's just – there's something different about Carrie. Like, I've talked to her a number of times now, and she's just – she's so smart, but she doesn't take herself too seriously. She works really hard. She's a very bright and optimistic person. And so they just, like, both of them, I think, wanted this brightness from her. Um And The Leftovers, which started – you know, it started kind of at the tail end of the, of the quote unquote golden age of television, of the, of the male antihero golden age of television. And so it started with Justin Thoreau sort of in that male antihero role. And then they were like, yeah, you know what? Who's more interesting is Carrie Coon. So the, the show ends as more of a two-hander, actually even weighted actually more towards her at the end, the leftovers. So, um, and then I guess the last thing I'll say is that, Car- this is, this is the epitome of Carrie Coon, I think, is I asked her, I was like, what's it like sort of being under consideration for these two big, sort of, they're not hugely popular shows, but they're critically beloved shows. And she's like, oh, I have no expectation. She's like, here's, here's what history tells me. I've never been nominated before. I don't think I'm going to get nominated <laughs> now. I told my mom it's not happening. So, uh, Emmy voters, if you're listening, yeah. uh, prove, prove her. Fix wrong, that. Please. I mean, I think yeah. there's
3: something else about her, her kind of recent success is that when she was in Who's Afraid of Virginia, Virginia Woolf, which was a Steppenwolf production that transferred to Broadway. She was one of three of the four actors to get nominated for a Tony. She had not really worked in television or film at all before. And this was only a few years ago. And so... It's not like we haven't we haven't seen a, t- a ton of Carrie Coon, you know, uh, in her 20s and, you know, it, she's kind of brand new mm-hmm. and so and, and but is so capable. So it's really exciting to see this to kind of like figure this person out like in these kind of high profile sort of in this high profile setting because people want to work with her. So it's just she's just exciting because it's like where the hell did she come from? Yeah. Um she came from see, Chicago. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> Most good things. Um yeah. but we feel like if she gets nominated it's probably for the leftovers.
0: Yeah, she was yeah. such, I mean, the Fargo has really, I actually struggled with Fargo for a while this season, even though it's been historically one of my favorite shows, and it really only clicked into place. What they were trying to do about three quarters of the way through. Like with the leftovers, I think, I think we all got kind of distracted by the Ewan McGregor of it all. And that wasn't really the point. It's the Carrie Coon and Mary Elizabeth Winstead of it all. And that's sort of what they're figuring out in the back quarter, I think. So, um, and the D- David Thulis who's having a moment of it all. Oh man, I just saw Wonder Woman. He really is having a moment. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I don't think Fargo is going to be much of a presence at all. Like maybe a, maybe a nomination for Ewan because of his star quality, but like I think Fargo is going to. Just- she made such a face. <laughs>
1: well, isn't you and the reason that Fargo season three isn't good? I mean, the yeah, first yeah, two were better because he wasn't in them. Sorry,
0: that's, <laughs> has that stopped like you know nominating know. bodies before? I don't. I don't and know. I like what, you and
1: McGregor a lot, but like he was so miscast too. in that role, and I just yeah. couldn't watch the. Yeah, he season. gets
3: he gets better toward the end, but I don't know if I, I mean would Emmy voters aren't going to watch till the very end? They're going to yeah. watch the one episode or whatever that's submitted, and you know, yeah. yeah. But so yeah, wait, I so think we- you're right, Joanne. I think leftovers, which you know, just because it had all this critical fanfare, Lindelof is a celebrity in his own right. Yeah, that people are are going to pay more attention to that. And you know, if they submit the right episode, which what I think would be the finale for, finale. for Carrie Coon, yeah. where she has this seven eight minute long monologue at the very end, there there you go. That I mean, I would hope that would be it.
0: Yeah, that finale also is is part of the larger TV narrative of this great like. TV finale redemption for Damon Lindelof because it's pretty much unanimously seen as a very successful sticking of the landing for The Leftovers after – when I I I interviewed Carrie Coon the day after the Leftovers finale aired, and she was her first thing she said is like, "Isn't this great news for Damon? I'm so happy for him. He can let it go. He can let all the lost stuff go now." And I so, was
1: like, "Oh, that's his lost vindication."
3: Okay. Yeah. Well, the funny yeah. thing about the way it ended is that it did the same. And, I mean, spoiler alert, but it did the same thing it lost did that, which is forget all the mystery and the supernatural blah, blah blah. It, this was always about the hum, the humanity and the heart of it all. And uh, right. when, when that, when that's what Lost did, it, I it infuriated me. I was yeah. like, are you kidding me? I've devoted six years to this thing, right. 22 episodes a season. But with Leftovers, it totally works. It's the same exact kind of cop yeah. out in a way, but it, it totally, I, which I, I is, buy it. Which
1: is interesting because it, that's really the difference of how you did the whole rest of the show. Like that that ending is right. only going to work when the, you weren't hanging into the show waiting for right. solutions to ridiculous. And, and when
3: Sponsors. you say, you know, up front, and I think they said in the first, Lindelof said in the first season, we are never going to tell you what happened, where these people, like, right. what, you know, what it was, what caused it. And they so, weren't constantly picking that stash. They weren't teasing things to Jeff Jensen at Entertainment Weekly every week. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: right. You know, when Jensen, the excuse me. When the, when the theme song for your second season is Let the Mystery Be, like, you know, that you're like (laughs) laying track for this. And, and what they did really successfully in the finale, once again, no like explicit spoilers, but, uh, whereas the leftovers made a lot of that supernatural stuff kind of visually part of the finale. This left some questions of, of perhaps supernatural or otherworldly, whatever, in the imagination of the viewer. Yeah. And kept everything very grounded in reality. And I think they, they just made a tiny, a million tiny decisions that resulted in just a much better wrap up with your totally right, Richard, a very similar philosophy behind it. So. Yeah. yeah. And she's, and
3: Kuhn is very much at the center of that. And she like holds that, that final episode beautifully. Oh, she's and, just so good. Yeah. I'm, and,
0: and, uh, like i know we've talked a lot about the technical awards that are open because game of thrones is not in the running this year the wig work and makeup work it's on the really finale good. of the lefters is so good it's amazing so i that's what would have my vote for yeah. for makeup and wig subtlety so, is key
3: and then and that's what they yeah. did and she really does look maybe you know however many years older
0: I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry.
1: I'm Vincent Cunningham and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.
4: Each week we're gonna talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music,
0: art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months?
1: There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out.
2: I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael
1: Mann's Ferrari.
0: (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and (laughs) and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene.
1: (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts.
0: You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon.
2: (laughs) So it is still summer movie season. There is good stuff coming out that isn't Transformers The Last Night, which Richard, you'll be suffering through at some point soon.
3: I, if you, yeah, I, think you I hear it's great. three You're hours making, long. Uh, Michael Bay corrected that. It's not, <laughs> okay. apparently, but it's still over two hours. So.
2: <laughs> it's just somehow, <laughs> somehow still too long. Uh, but anyway, coming out next week is The Big Sick, which uh, you may remember when Richard was at Sundance, who was uh, talking about it as one of the big hits out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Richard, you talked to Michael Showalter, who is the director of the movie, a little while ago. We're going to share that interview, but I just wanted to hear a little bit about The Big Sick. I mean, it's coming out next week. It's a summer movie. It's a, you know, it's a rom-com which has a happy ending that everyone knows about because it's about a woman in a coma based on the woman who co-wrote the screenplay. Um, Right, right. But uh, it seems to have a lot of prestige around it. It's got buzz in a way that a lot of summer movies don't.
3: Yeah, um, it was a movie that... I skipped at Sundance because I was hungry. And, of course, it was the movie that everyone loved. <laughs> Luckily, Jordan Hoffman, our, our stringer, was able to see it and review it that day. But I, ca- I caught it later. Uh, and, yeah, it's you know, it's produced by Judd Apatow, and it has his stamp all over it. It's long. <laughs> it's a lot about comedy and comedians and kind of a lot of improvised-seeming banter. Bo Burnham is in there, uh, Aidy Bryant from SNL. But it also has this emotional component. It's very much about family. It's very sort of like... In some ways, you know, centered on sort of the relationships and family being the sort of core of a person's life, you know, which is a very sort of apotaiyan ideal. That that said, it has this other perspective because Kumail Nanjiani wrote co-wrote it and is the star. And you know, aren't you sick of all of these r- splashy romantic comedies with oh a Pakistani American as God. a lead? It's, it's just like another one about a Muslim family, I you know. know. <laughs> Just so All many.
2: Pop culture depictions of Muslims yeah. as positive role yeah. models. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, so that's a really exciting element to it. But, you know, in no way does the movie sort of rely on that to just sort of escape by it, it. it's a, it's a nicely textured, thoughtful movie with beautiful. I mean, Nanjiani's great in it. Uh, Zoe Kazan is really good as the, the girlfriend in a coma. But m- most excitingly beyond Camille being in the movie is that, uh, playing Zoe Kazan's character's parents are Ray Romano and Holly Hunter, which is kind of crazy out of the box casting, especially for Ray Romano, but they're both great. And yeah. they're just, it's, it's, they're, Nanjiani has most of his scenes with them, not with Zubakazan. And, yeah. and their dynamic is really interesting. And it's just like a funny one we haven't really seen, or I haven't seen in for a while on, on screen where a guy's relationship with his girlfriend's parents be, sort of takes center stage, mm-hmm. you know? So it's fun. It's a crowd pleaser for sure. And I think it, it's coming out in a kind of dire time for movies like this season, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think it's great counter programming.
2: I mean, so I saw some of the usual suspects who, who we know and love uh, squabbling with each other on Twitter about whether or not considering Ray Romano and Holly Hunter as like Oscar long shots was mm-hmm. ridiculous. It, mm-hmm. it seems worth trying. If they're as good as everyone says they are, like someone should put like a couple bucks behind an FYC campaign for them.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it came out a little bit later in the year, but like, but with similarly at Sundance and simil- similarly toned in a way, um, other people, the, the Chris mm-hmm. Kelly movie, um, Molly Shannon kind of wrote that supporting buzz to an Indie, award. indie Spirit Award. Exactly. You know, she didn't get an Oscar nomination, as some thought, uh, maybe when we saw it back in Sundance. But yeah, no, I think absolutely. Like, yeah. I think that that movie will have, it definitely has its ardent fans already. So I, th- I think that um, what just remains to be seen is whether it connects with mainstream audiences and is a box office hit or if it goes the way of me and Earl and the Dying Girl or something, which I don't think it will. I think this one's a little more accessible.
2: Yeah. I mean, I actually, my perspective on this now, you know, I live in a town that has one indie theater that has very good movies that come through, but it's like, you know, one or two at a time. And the movies lately, it's been like, like Norman, the movie with Richard Gere and a lot of kind of like very adult movies. Mm -hmm. And I feel like something comes through like the big sick. And I think it's opening in some limited release. It may go wide at some point, but it's an indie. And so when you get something like that, that comes in there, you're like, oh, this is charming and has young people and like it seems like something that can, that can really draw people in in that way especially in the summer
3: oh for sure i mean it, it has shades of mike probiglia's movie don't think twice mm-hmm. which you know was this kind of sleeper hit it ran for ages yeah. in um in indie theaters in new york and uh, at least you know that had this sort of added effect that Iroglass was shilling it every week on this American life (laughs) uh, who is a producer in the movie but yeah I don't know it's it's I think I think people will be it'll be welcome relief for those who are sick of you know things blowing up and whatnot
0: yeah yeah kind of programming and um If you've heard any single interview with Camille and Emily, like they're just so charming and they are very aware that they are the counter-programming of the summer and that's sort of what they've been trying to sell themselves as in interviews. And I really do – I agree. I really do see this. It's not going to be train wreck. You know, it's not going to be that Judd Apatow comedy of the summer, but it, I really do think that it has been, like legs and potential. So, well, oh, and Joanna,
2: you're a fan of Camille from way back. So I'm it's a kind huge, of like seeing a, yeah.
0: seeing a local boy made good. That's what it <laughs> feels like. And Emily, too, like I've heard them on podcasts for you, know, because this is a story that they used to occasionally tell about like her going into a coma. And, you know, and so I, I heard that story like, I don't know, like seven years ago now, I think something like that, or five years ago. And, uh, so to see it made in, to this movie that's not only you know has all these other great names in it but everyone really likes it like that's just yeah it does it, it feels like a friend even though he's definitely not my friend so,
2: just, you <laughs> he's a friend to us all sure um so richard you talked to michael showalter who's the director who yeah. has his own fascinating background in comedy he does, you yeah. know he was a ve- he's a veteran of the state he was one of the guys involved in what had american summer he has directed some movies before but i don't think any movie i don't think anything he's directed has had quite the buzz or impact around it that this has it's kind of a, an interesting step up for him
3: it is yeah and we talked while he was out for walk and he you know he just had kind of a lot to say about kind of this second phase of his career i guess you could look at it in a way or third phase or something because you know this is a more mainstream movie right um he did uh last year or two years ago hello my name is doris with sally field which was which was good it was great but like had a kind of darkness to it the big sick doesn't quite but yeah i asked him about that and he Really talked about how he loves romantic comedies always has, and though he 's them, parodied them in the past with something like they came together, this you know he was like, I just kind of applied that same love just more sincerely so i think and I think it pays off, and you know we also talked about his show Search Party, which is decidedly darker. he created it with two younger writers who he taught at n y u actually i um, and' sort of sort of mentoring them through the process and so yeah so he 's kind of doing a lot of interesting things um, behind the camera right now, which is uh which is bearing fruit. So that's kind of what, mostly what we spoke about.
2: Yeah. So let's listen to your interview with Michael Showalter. Walter. <laughs>
3: I'm on the line now with Michael Showalter, the director of The Big Sick, which was really one of the biggest breakout hits of Sundance this year. And Michael is kind of moving into a new phase of his career as a as a director. So, so Michael, congrats on that. Uh, that must have been quite a uh, a premiere, because I mean, I remember when when that when that screened, it was just people just exploded when 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 the movie got out. So, what can you tell us a little bit about that experience?
5: You know, it's always a very sort of emotional and nervous moment when you show your movie to. A big audience for the first time. And it's kind of an an out-of-body experience, too, because you're seeing it differently than when you're with your collaborators in an editing room. You're seeing different places where the audience laughs or doesn't laugh, or you're maybe scanning their faces and stuff. And quite honestly, I wasn't sure how it was playing when, when, when it was screening. I couldn't tell. And I've since realized that part of that might be, and this is not a joke, because I was feeling the altitude. The, the altitude was having a real effect on me. And so I think I might have been like a little bit out of it during the screening.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, that happens there for sure. <laughs> I, I've, I've fallen prey to it
5: myself. Yes, yeah, so on the one hand, your your movie is screening on at Sundays, and on the other hand, you have very poor circulation in your feet. Right. But
3: yeah, I mean, after the screening, I mean, you know, when reviews started coming in and tweets and all that, it it, it seemed clear that this was going to be one of the big hits of the festival this year, which, you know, it, it it's proven to be. Was there anything about this reaction that surprised you? Did people, I guess, kind of interact with the movie in a way that was unexpected, or or was it kind of um, you were like, okay, right, you know, they they got what I was trying to do exactly.
5: I mean, there's there, you know, have you seen the film? I have, yeah. hmm the sort of needle that we were always trying to thread with the movie was how to keep the first act of the movie is kind of a romantic, a straightforward romantic comedy love story. And then half an hour into the movie, as I think, I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying this, but Emily Zoe Kazan's character goes into a coma. (laughs) Um, And for the next hour of the movie, she's in the hospital in a coma, which It's challenging both in terms of ways in which it sort of subverts our expectations of how a story like that is supposed to go. And then also just that it's hard to, it's hard to make a comedy when something as serious as that is going on. And so, and that's, that's not to mention all of the other kind of big challenges we had in terms of the themes we were working with. But that specifically for me was the tightrope of what, how this movie was going to work was were we able to Keep the movie feeling like a comedy in the second act while not shortchanging how serious the situation is that these characters are dealing with. And so I think it was gratifying to see that it seemed like we had had succeeded at, at threading that particular needle.
3: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it definitely has this a sort of you know, a poignancy to it that you wouldn't necessarily associate with a straightforward romantic comedy, but also a humor that you wouldn't associate necessarily with a kind of drama about medical, you know, yeah. scares and stuff like that. So it's a good in between. Yeah. You you wrote They Came Together, which is this kind of send up of romantic comedy tropes. So I was curious what it was like going from writing that to directing this Thing that isn't a parody of it's actually is kind of the real thing. Was was that a funny kind of shifting of your perspective, or how did that work for you?
5: Well, and I I also wrote and directed a movie in two thousand and five called The Baxter, which is also a a total deconstruction of romantic comedies. And The Baxter is a little bit more sincere than than They Came Together. They Came Together is truly, you know, was really just almost a, a pure spoof. Yeah, and in all of the cases. What I think, where I think there's crossover, and is that in, in in every version of it, I love this genre, and so it's always coming from a place of of love. It's never, I'm I'm not I'm not making fun of these movies because I think they're stupid. I'm actually these the the parodies are really almost love letters to this genre, which I I grew up on these movies and have committed them to memory. Whether it's you know Woody Allen's romantic comedies or Richard Curtis's movies, or Nora Ephron, and there's so many great, iconic romantic comedies that I have in my sort of my my mental encyclopedia that that they all kind of blend together. But it is interesting where when in the in a movie like Big Sick you come across a kind of a convention of a genre, only you're not subverting it. You're actually using it in a sincere way that you do sort of make a mental note of those moments.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, and I'm also curious in terms of this particular material, you know, this is Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon's, you know, story. This is based on their life to an extent. When When you're reading a script like that and thinking about directing it, how much are you trying to just be in service of their story and how much of your stamp do you want to put on it? Is there, is is that kind of a conversation you have internally um, when you're starting out a project like this?
5: Yeah. I mean, primarily I'm thinking, how can I make their story work the best it can possibly work? Um, that's 99% of my agenda is to see is that when I read the script, I felt like, and this is all very technical, this has nothing to do with just, how amazed I was by their story, and how kind of relevant I thought it was as a story that needed to be told. And at the time that we started working on this movie, and and uh, Kumail and Emily and Judd Apatow were working on it long before I was uh, a part of it. The world was a very different place, and even then, it felt like a very important story to tell—a story about Pakistani-born American citizen who is trying to navigate his life as an American while also trying to cope with his strong identity as a Muslim and a Pakistani. And all of that felt really important to me. And then again, that's sort of what I say, and then add into it, there's this, this true, incredible true story of, of how they met and Emily's, Emily Gordon's character, having had this experience of going into a coma at a very crucial point in their relationship. It's just, it's stranger than fiction. When I first read the script, what I felt was, how can I take the, a lot, this story that's true and kind of exploding with ideas and inspiration, and how can I help them frame it in a way and put it in a package that, that, that we can then show, show, to other, you know, show to the rest of the world? What I sort of brought to the table, at least initially, was just a lot of ideas that I have kind of in a very dogmatic way about just kind of how to structure a story and how to help structure the story in a way that would, would, would be entertaining as, as mercenary as that sounds. Um, as the, you know, there were, as the director, a lot of times I was sort of like, I'll be the guy who's just thinking about the result. But as you work on a project like this and you get closer and closer to the material, there's parts of of all of us who worked on the movie in the film. It's obviously very much Emily and and Kumail's story primarily, but we, you know, there's, there's pieces of me in there as well. And and I was in New York city when Kumail moved there at the end of the movie. I won't give anything away, but uh, maybe I already have Kumail moves to New York and you know, to pursue his career as a stand up comedian and I was in New York. I was one of those comedians that met him when he kind of first got to New York City and so I feel that connection to the to the story too, that I remember Camille from the early days. And I remember being very impressed and intrigued by him.
3: Oh, wow. So you've had like kind of a long kind of time of being aware of him and now getting to work with him. That's, that's, a that's a cool kind of full circle sort of thing.
5: Yeah. I mean, like there, there's, you know, there's scenes in the movie in the comedy clubs and like, I'm, you know, I was in those clubs. I was there.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
5: From a direct standpoint, it was really, that was something that I was excited about is to try to kind of bring the, bring the backstage life, of a comedy club onto, onto the screen was something I really wanted to do.
3: Yeah. And I think you get that. And, you know, I think Bo Burnham and Eddie. Bryant are great, you know, the, the whole film is cast really well. The whole cast is great, but I'm especially curious about Holly Hunter and Ray Romano, just because both of them in some extent are playing to some extent are playing a little bit against type where you wouldn't expect to see them in a movie like this. How did they come to be in the film? Was that sort of your stroke of genius or what was the story there?
5: You know, we st- as we started to kind of conceive of the characters of Emily's parents, which obviously there's you know there's a true story there, but then there's also a lot of us just taking some creative license to imagine. As Zoe Kazan, we knew Zoe Kazan was going to play that character and wanting to somewhat cast around her, and then also just I think early on we all just started talking about Holly Hunter and Ray as these two actors that we love, that, we are, that, are, that are so special. And we kind of started talking about them in these roles, and then the, the characters sort of started to take shape around them. But they were who we always wanted. It wasn't my stroke of genius. It was, a, it was you know, I think uh, Judd Apatow had been talking about Holly Hunter from, from the very beginning of, of when I joined the project. And we all know and love her from her early comedies, as well as the, you know everything she's done since, but you know, broadcast news and and raising Arizona and this sort of comedic powerhouse that she is, and then Ray Romano is just we all feel this kind of like you know comic genius that we knew would could br- could bring the kind of like depth as an actor that the role needed, but also could could bring a certain kind of levity and humor. What, as we discussed, was like a very kind of like tr- scary situation in the lives of these characters. And they were both, I mean, it was thrilling to work with them, and, and they're both like, you know, phenomenal people. It's,
3: it's, I mean, they work out beautifully in the movie, and, 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 and I think that that kind of you know, Holly Hunter, um, you know, kind of returning to the sort of comedy of her earlier career. And, and there's just a lot of kind of career shifting in this movie. You know, Kumail is a leading film, you know, movie star. And, and, you know, you as as a director, I mean, this is not your first film, obviously, but just in the last two years between this and Hello, My Name is Doris, you seem to be sort of entering something new. And and you, you mentioned earlier a sincerity. And while Doris is it's a it's a strange and, and dark movie, but there's a lot of heart there too, and obviously there's a ton of heart in the big sick. Um is this kind of a conscious thing that you're you're creating for yourself or is it just kind of as luck would have it, these projects sort of materialized around the same time?
5: Well, I suppose it's a little bit of both. I mean it's it's how I've always it's sort of who I think I really truly am as a solo on my own, this is this is my me, you know. Obviously I have done a lot of collaboration with, with David Wayne and Michael Black and that's the wet hot American summer and Stella and they came together, which is the more sort of meta sort of absurdist comedic thing, which is very much me as well. But I think to the extent that it was just, that it just sort of happened is, is that I was not really feeling like I was given, being given the opportunity to show this part of me. I, I wanted to and I'd wanted to kind of show this part of me and, and, and maybe didn't have the opportunity or didn't have the right material to to do it. Hello, my name is Doris with this script that I wrote with Laura Terusso. And even the early draft of that movie, I was sort of leaning, we were leaning more on the sort of comedic, my comedic, the absurd silly part and was, Encouraged by my producer, Daniela Taplin, to kind of go deeper into the more psychological aspects of the character, which felt like something I wanted to do, but I suppose was afraid on some level that I might fail. Like I would go, you know, go into those areas and not know what to do or, and, um, it turned out, you know, with Doris and then having Sally Field take that role and kind of, the minute Sally Field said, yes, I'll do this part, everything, sort like the whole par- prism shifted in my brain around, okay, I have this this actress, and this actress wants to give an incredible performance, and now my job is to just help her do that in whatever way I possibly can. And it kind of was a game changer for me, I have to say, working with her and seeing the way she worked, and also she was very much encouraging me to to take risks and, and, and sort of, you know, giving me pep talks like you can do this kind of thing. And I do think that it's like the, the, this is, as a director and as a writer, this is sort of my, where I feel most authentic is in a kind of, and it's, and it's the kind of movies that I love the most is, is movies that kind of hit you everywhere. You laugh and you cry and you get to see the full range of, of human emotion in, in one sort of two-hour experience. Well, I'm also a very big fan of theater and plays and musicals. And so my whole life, I've always, always gone to see as many plays as I can. And there's a kind of a format that you'll see if you go to see a lot of Broadway serious plays, which is that the first two thirds tend to be very funny. So even in a dramatic play. Tony Kushner or whomever, David Rabe, whatever the, the classic American, you know, dramas, I was in a play called, randomly, <laughs> I was in the original uh, off-Broadway cast of How I Learned to Drive, which ended up winning all these awards. Oh, were you, not you the Teenage anything, great Chorus? Not because of anything I did, yes. I was, the, if you Google it, I'm in the original Broadway cast with Mary awesome. Louise Parker and David Morse. Quite a play. And, it's like the only acting job I've ever really had, for all intents and purposes. But you know that couldn't be a more serious play, you know, in terms of the subject matter. But even a show like that is is quite funny for the first two thirds, and then it really starts to kind of like go for the knockout punches in the last third of the play, and that's kind of a convention of these of, of theater. And so I've taken ai sort of have taken some of that approach took a little bit of that approach with Doris and, and a little bit with They Came Together, too. I'm sorry, with The Big Sick as well, that you sort of get them laughing for the first two thirds and then you sort of, you know, you go for your, your knockout punches in the final third. And that feels very satisfying to me, both as a filmmaker, but then also just as an audience member. That's what, those are the movies that I remember and that really stay with me.
3: Yeah, I mean I think and I think that you you know you you do build that tone really well and I think that that's probably just because you've had this lifelong love of of that genre. So so I'm assuming that this is maybe something you want to continue a vein you want to develop and and explore and further films? Yes,
5: yes, absolutely. And I mean, I do, but I, I 100% do and you know, I'm a, you know, when I was in growing up, I actually wanted was thinking that I would pursue a career as like a cinema studies professor or something my, both my parents are academics and that's where I thought my career would go. I never thought that I would be on the production side or an actor or anything like that. And so I just liked movies in general. I liked everything. I liked comedies and I liked Hitchcock movies and Westerns and film noir movies and French movies. And that's sort of what I was thinking I would do. I joined a comedy group my freshman year of college that became a that ended up being my career for the next for still today, which was which was we were called the new group then, but it became the state, and then that's where I met David Wayne and Michael Black and all the other guys, and everything kind of turned. But then I actually wound up teaching screenwriting at NYU Graduate Film School, which was a weird sort of uh, everything comes full circle, and that's where. I met a lot of the people I'm working with now. And I think in a way, teaching at NYU in the graduate school where so many of those students are there to make more dramatic films and documentaries is where I actually, it's the the cliche of, you know, they they teach me more than I teach them. But in, in the case of NYU, it really was true. Working with the students really kind of gave me a little bit of courage to practice what I was preaching because I was helping them. To try to get more honest and more down to the essence of the work that they were doing, but I wasn't necessarily doing that in my own in my own writing in my own work. So there was a symbiosis there. That's cool. That's good. That's
3: that, that's that, that's a good way to uh, to sort of experience teaching on the on on that side of things. You know, uh, to learn something yourself. Well, and
5: and now I mean, and now they are my collaborators. Laura Tarusso who I wrote Doris with was not a student of mine, but she was a student at NYU, and that's where I met her. And then I do a TV show called Search Party, and my collaborators on that are Sarah Violet Bliss and Charles Rogers, who were my students.
3: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that show because it's it's quite it's quite something, and it's different than what we're talking about with the, the the film projects, certainly in tone. Yeah, but I think it's really quite something. You know, I I said something about it when I first watched it that in a lot of ways, Search Party, with its kind of millennial satire, but also this kind of grimness seeping into the picture, like, I kind of almost feel like it predicted this kind of current political climate, like just the the darkness kind of settling on things that once seemed kind of fun. uh, What has that experience been like working on that show? Because it's, you know, again, it's with younger creators, and and it's sort of about this very particular sort of generation. What has your experience been? And what do you think you've brought to it for them?
5: Well, I mean, first of all, I think what you said is interesting. And what what I felt about them, Sarah, Violet, and Charles, who who made this movie called Fort Tilden, which, which won an audience award at South by Southwest some years ago, is that they have a very specific comedic voice that's very different than mine. It's, as you say, it's very dark. Nobody is, everyone has spikes and armor in their, in their worldview. <laughs> Everybody is kind of out for themselves and my my point of view is much more kind of uh hopeful and idealistic that that there's pain and and suffering but that like at the deep down people are really good um or at least I'd like to believe that and but growing up I remember specifically Bret Easton Ellis and the book Less Than Zero which was sort of like my catcher in the rye and in a way they, their work reminded me of that. Of this kind of vision of the world that's kind of hopeless and selfish and dark. But also very funny. And I felt like it was a really important way in that I hadn't seen, that I felt that I hadn't quite seen. And it, it reminded me of Lesson Zero or The River's Edge or even, you know, The Graduate or something of just a certain kind of millennial perspective that that is important. So I, yeah. think, I think what I, cause it's not just disaffection. It's not just boredom. It's something darker than that. You know, it's, it's, it's not just, Oh, I'm in my twenties and I'm a slacker and I have nothing to do. It's, it's an actual idea that people aren't good. That That's actually the, that's actually a little bit of, of the, of the undercurrent of all of it is, an idea that I think they, they have, whether they're conscious of it or not, that people actually might not be good. And that people, and that catharsis doesn't happen. People don't change. People don't have a big realization about something and then suddenly they're a different person. It doesn't happen. I don't feel that way. And if I brought anything to this, to this project aside from just, you know, in a grander sense, I mean, I've been very in, you know, actively involved with it as anyone would be, but just on the larger sense is to inject some possibility that there's some hope for change. Even if we don't get a chance to see it, I think the audience needs to think that on some level maybe there's a chance for these characters. If the world is completely hopeless, then I think a certain a certain segment of, of the audience would tune out. And I think that that would be unfor- unfortunate because they have so much, they have so much to say. And so there was a little bit of, of me just trying to broaden the world out to be more inclusive of a wider audience. And that sort of centered around us feeling like these characters, particularly in the, in the Alia Shawkat character, that there's some hope for these characters, that they're not just lost causes
3: yeah and i think that 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 shines through and i think it's a really exciting and interesting show and you know i think that that's actually a perfect place to leave it michael thank you so much for talking to us and congrats on both search party and the big sick and 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 my my name is doris and, and everything to come i can't wait to see what you do next
5: thank you so much i really appreciate it
2: That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you for listening. As always, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcast. We appreciate your feedback, and we love hearing from you and on Twitter and on VanityFair.com and all of the ways you can get in touch with us. And uh, please go to VF.com and read our Emmys for your consideration series. We've got some really cool interviews and just a, a great opportunity to talk about the TV that we have loved that we might not have talked about in a few months, but now is a great time to bring it all back up. Uh, so you can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men, and on our own, I'm at Katie Rich, Richard,
3: I'm at Rylaws. Mike is Mike underscore Hogan. Johanna Desta is at Johanna Desta. Johanna with a Y.
2: And how about you, Joanna? I'm at this. Hey! This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply.
3: And the award for best sales pitch for ReadingVF.com goes to Katie Rich.
2: Oh, this is charming and has young people. And-